Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. To begin, I want you to imagine a church service where a member or perhaps even a member family slips in uh, quietly in the back of the auditorium just as the service is starting. Uh, They may or may not mumble along with the words of the songs that are sung, but certainly listen intently as the sermon is given. When the service is over and the final song has been sung, they gather up their things and quietly exit the building, or perhaps they stay through the end of the service, saying hello to a few friends before they quickly leave. Either way, they are happy with what they heard in the sermon. Perhaps they even enjoyed the music that was played. And they are content to go about their week feeling as if spiritual fuel has been put into their tank for the week. They have experienced church and now church is done until the next Sunday. Now having grown up in a few churches and attended quite a few more as a visitor, this is no theoretical situation but a real world example of how probably thousands of people attend church week in and week out across this country. For such people, church is really nothing more than a group of Christians together. That's what church is for them, more than one Christian in one place. They come together to hear a talk, give some money, maybe do some ministry, and a little more. Sundays are basically about a time of public devotions, and that's it. And when we think about that, when we see the increasing, increasing popularity of that kind of mindset, we have to ask ourselves, is that what God intends for us to understand church to be? Is that the vision of the church that we find in the New Testament? Is that what Jesus had in mind when he said, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised back to life, and I, through you apostles, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Is that what he had in mind? Was he only thinking of people gathering together to be encouraged for an hour than to go on about their week with little or no thought of the others who had gathered with them? Well, I think the answer, of course, is no. That is not what Christ had in mind. It is not what the apostles had in mind when they established churches. It's not what we see through the examples and the commands about church life that are given throughout the Bible. Instead, we see a vision of church that speaks to individual Christians that are nevertheless intimately and organically connected together in deep and meaningful ways that extend beyond just any weekly service. We see a community of mutual care and ministry to one another as well as to the world. Thus, within the the New Testament context, we have pictures of the church being described as a people, a temple, and a vine, but also a flock, a family, and a body. Jesus and the apostles push us to reconsider our inherent, our natural self-interest and self-focused view of the Christian life in favor of a a view that is inherently others-focused. So as we begin this year thinking about the pillars upon which the Christian life rests, our communion with God through prayer and through the Word, even here this morning we want to think in communal terms. Last week, Pastor Richard talked from Colossians 1 about the why and the how of praying, not just to God on our behalf, but specifically praying for one another. And this morning, we want to consider how our intake of Scripture, how our hearing and responding to the Word of God benefits not just ourselves, but benefits all of God's people around us. Now, whether or not I specifically announce it, 
usually at some point right before or after the scripture reading, I try and summarize the content of the sermon in one sentence. This morning, that sentence is taken from somebody else. I ripped off somebody else because it's such a good sentence. Not a sermon, but uh, in another book called Encouragement, an author from Australia named Gordon Chang says this about the point of that book. God's word changes us through us. It can change others too. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what Paul is going to show us from Colossians 3 this morning. We're going to look at verses 16 through 17, but to catch the larger context, I want us to begin reading at verse 1. So follow along with me, Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Hear God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is evil in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God bless the reading of his word. So far in this letter, Paul has spent two chapters writing to the, the Christians at Colossae to remind them of the supremacy of Christ. They are being tempted to um, bring in foreign concepts and ideas, pagan uh, religious beliefs, and syncretize them with their Christian beliefs. And so Paul is writing to remind them about the exclusivity of Christianity and its claims about Christ and spirituality. So he's laid out this extensive Christology in chapters 1 and 2, a doctrine of Christ that not only shows him to be supreme, glorious as God in the flesh, both Savior and Lord, but also sufficient for life and godliness in all things. Because of the completed work of salvation, there is no need, Paul says, to pursue anything else, to add to anything that Jesus has done. We can fully trust and rest in Him. That was chapters 1 and 2. It was, as it were, pure gospel instruction. Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is making this turn to show us what kind of life should be lived by those who trust Christ. Simply put, Paul says we ought to be 
putting to death, putting off and killing our old life of sin and putting on our new life in Christ. We are to cast off the wickedness and rebellion in which we once lived and now to cultivate and grow into a life of righteousness and obedience to which we've been called through faith in Jesus. And part of the way that we are to do that is through the Word of Christ among the community of Christ. And so that's what we want to focus on as we look at verses 16 through 17. We want to see why we should be seeking to have God's Word change us so that through us it can change others in the church as well. And so we see two broad commands this morning. First, we ought to dwell with the Word of Christ. We ought to dwell with the Word of Christ. Paul says in verse 16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now what is this Word? Uh, word of Christ might be a little bit vague. It might be Christ's words. So you think about the, the, the body of teaching that was remembered and written down and passed along and used for discipleship in the context of the early church. That You think about the red letters at the beginning of the first four books of your New Testament. That might be what he means, that the literal words of Christ. But I think based upon how he uses this expression elsewhere in similar expressions, Paul more likely wants us to understand this to be a word about Christ, the word of Christ, that is the word of him, about him, the message which proclaims Christ. And I take that from the fact that, you know, Paul did not rely on the words of Jesus when he preached the gospel. He had all 39 books of the Old Testament from which he unfolded the glories of Christ's saving work. So from the law and the writings and the prophets, Paul would show and preach and tell and convince that Jesus became the Savior of all people by fulfilling God's purposes, offering his life and atonement for sin and rising again to reign over all things. In other words, he preached the word of Christ, the gospel, from all the scriptures. And so I think we're being told here that this gospel message from all the Bible should dwell in us. And that idea of dwelling speaks to something that is permanent. It is a permanent word that Paul is speaking about here, a permanent word. It's not just passing by. It's not just in for a visit. It's dwelling with us right? It's living in us. It's not something superficial. It's not just something trotted out on special occasions. The gospel is meant to be something that we not just acknowledge verbally, but really only pay lip service to, but rather something that is to be a constant presence in our life. And that should be true of us both individually as well as corporately as a church body. In other words, the message of Christ from all the Bible should be something that each of us is giving an intentional pursuit to. And of course, that begins at its simplest by simply setting aside, setting aside time to read or listen to the Scriptures with regular intentionality, to make that Word a natural and regular part of our lives. Over the years, people have asked me about what is the best way to study the Bible? What is the best way to, to, to read the Bible? And what I've essentially said is you need three different ways of getting the Bible into you, three different schedules for reading the Scriptures, ideally. You need a plan for the whole Bible, a plan for a book of the Bible, and a plan for a specific passage from the Bible. 
And so let me just unpack those three for you. First of all, you're routinely working through the whole of God's Word, all of the Scriptures. That might be the Bible in a year. That might be the Bible over two years if you're following along with our reading guide. But that's not quite enough. That's good, but you need more than that as well. What I would say secondly then is to read more seriously over larger chunks of the Bible. Specifically, take one book and read it over and over and over again over the course of a month. Try to set aside time even for the larger books, but especially for the littler books, to so just read the whole thing in one sitting. So the, the most, uh, if you are an average reader, not you know super high test speed reader, not even above average, average reader, the longest you would sit with any one book of the Bible, Isaiah, would be three hours. Now, most of us pay big money for popcorn and a pop to go sit and watch a movie for three hours. And I know it's not the same. I know it's not the same, but what I would recommend is to open your Bible, cue up somebody else reading the scriptures to you, some audio Bible, several are free, and just follow along. Block out that Saturday or that Friday night or whatever it is, and just listen to the Word of God. But study one book over and over again, reading it through the course of a month. And then a third final way that we've talked about is to slow down and study a, a passage more specifically. So you've got a plan for the whole Bible, plan for a book of the Bible, and then a plan for a specific passage in the Bible. And here you're actually doing study. Okay, so in those other readings, what you're trying to do is just get the content of the Bible into you. Okay, you're trying to fill up your mind with the words of the storyline of everything that goes into that Bible study. There might be some meditation, some thoughtfulness, some things that stand out. But in those readings, what you're trying to do is build up your knowledge base so that when you get to this third step, which is an intensive study of one passage, you've actually got some foundations to work with. You've got a, an outline of the Bible. You know how it's going to relate to what, what came before in the Old Testament, what came after in the New Testament. And that's what we're trying to do in our um, community group times, but it shouldn't be limited to that as well. You should be able to do Bible study on your own, all the while looking at that text through the lens of the saving work of Christ. The Bible is a gospel book. It is the word of Christ. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking immediately, I don't have that much time. Well, let's just break this down for a minute, okay? For the average reader, you can read through the entire Bible in a year, that's four chapters, in about 15 minutes a day. That's it, 15 minutes every day, and you've read through the whole Bible in a year. That works out to be about seven and a half minutes if you're doing it over the course of two years. Doing a larger reading where you sit down with a book or a chunk of the book over and over again might be 30 to 40 minutes a day. Then, once or twice a week, doing an in-depth Bible study would take you anywhere from 30, to 30 minutes to an hour. So think about what we're talking about here. We're talking about an hour a day. That's it, an hour a day every, every day plus an hour or so extra per week to pull off this kind of reading plan. Now, I don't know about you, I spend more time in front of the television alone in that, just watching the news on a weekly basis, not to mention social media, blog reading, book reading, all kinds of other things. Friends, that's doable, okay? Now, am I writing that down as some kind of new law, thus saith the Lord in the book of John chapter 77 or whatever it is, that you must do this to be a good Christian? No, I'm not doing that at all. I am saying as someone who has made it his life's goal and, and frankly source of employment to be studying and reading and knowing the scripture, that is the ideal way to approach the Bible, of getting the word of Christ to dwell in you. But if you need more, more motivation than just 
the fact that it won't take you that much time. Think about, think about that Bible that is on your lap right now, that Bible that's in your hand. Think about what it is, where it came from, how it came to be in your hands. We believe, as we just read earlier and confessed through our catechism question, that God is eternal and infinite. And yet He condescended to write a book for us. He condescended Himself to summarize something about himself, his being, his glory, his love, his plan and salvation into 66 booklets that have been bound together in one book that have been preserved for thousands of years that we might be able to sit comfortably in a chair with a cup of coffee and meditate on the living God. That is an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing not to be taken lightly. Think about the fact that you live in this day and age. You live in 2015 where literacy rates are astronomically high considering world history. That you actually know how to read. That you live in a free country where you can have a Bible. More than that, you live in a country that's privileged that you can have a Bible in your language. You don't have to learn a second language to read the Bible. In fact, there are at last count something like 27 translations of the Bible in your language, God has richly blessed us with his word in an amazing way throughout providence right up until today. It is a miracle that we hold this book in our hands. It would be a shame to blow it off, to not seek to have it be a permanent word, a permanent presence in our life, even as Paul commands that it should dwell in us. But notice it's not, just, it's not just a permanent word as well. It says that the word of Christ should dwell richly in us. That means that it's not just something permanent, it should be something pervasive. It's a permanent word, but it's also a pervasive word. The word should dwell richly in us. I take that to mean that we're not just reading and talking about the Bible, but it's actually changing us. It's evident that the Bible is in operation in our life. The message of, of Christ, the gospel, is not just about forgiveness. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. It is foundational for all of the encouragement and transformation that will take place over the course of our lives. And so Paul Tripp says that the gospel is about the right now as much as it is about what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. He says there is a, quote, radical and mind-changing, life-altering nowism of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote, that causes it to be the window of everything in life. Everything about how we live should be affected by our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and its reality in history. Think about it this way. Think about whenever you either moved into a new apartment or better yet, you bought a new home. Think about everything you did to start making it not just a home, but your home. You perhaps finished off an unfinished basement. You put in landscaping. Maybe you put down new carpeting or tore up old carpeting and put in new flooring. You painted the walls. You hung pictures. Perhaps you said, this needs to go over here, or no, that should be over there. Or maybe you were the husband holding the furniture while your wife said those things to you. However it went, you went about making that house yours. 
And God does the same thing in us when the word dwells richly in us. As individuals and as a church, God begins to increasingly take possession of us and mold us and shape us into the people he wants us to be. If the word is dwelling richly in us, then it's coming and filling up every nook and cranny in our lives. It moves things out that doesn't belong and it puts other things in that take their place. It seeps down into the deep crevices of our soul and changes how we think, how we feel, how we respond to things around us. It is pervasive and infiltrates and leaves its mark on us. All the while, we are being recast into the richer image of Jesus himself. God's word is at work to change us, but through us, it can change others as well. And this is why we should seek not just to let the, the, the word dwell with us, that we would dwell with the word of Christ, but that we also ought to speak to the people of Christ. We ought to speak to the people of Christ. Right after Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, who is Paul writing to here? He's not just writing to a pastor He's not just writing to elders or Sunday school teachers or those that will be seminary professors. He's writing to everyday Christians. Paul intends that every believer will be involved in a ministry of the word. And while it's true that part of the everyday ministry of believers, the word of, of ministry of the word of believers is to speak to those outside the church, the gospel of Christ, that they might come to faith, here specifically he speaks to one another. He's looking at believers speaking to other believers in the context of a local church. Now, this is not a new message for this church. In fact, over the last few years, the elders have sought to build a culture of, of, of every person speaking God's word to one another. And, but if, the, if you're perhaps newer or if you're still unclear on how important that is or expected, here's just a, a few passages to kind of bring you up to speed. In Romans 15, Paul expected the Roman Christians were filled with all knowledge and were therefore able to instruct one another. Did that mean they knew everything? No, but they knew enough of the scriptures, of the gospel message to be able to teach one another. In Ephesians 4, Paul says passages are to equip the saints for ministry. What is that ministry? Just a few verses later, he tells us, 15, that they might be speaking the truth in love so that the church will grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So we have that in there, we have that here. Clearly for Paul, this is a central concern, but the author of Hebrews gets it on the action as well. After writing in chapter 3, quoting from Psalm 95, about the importance of hearing the word of God today, not turning your backs, not ignoring it like Israel in the rebellion, uh, being kicked out of the promised land and not seeing the blessings of God's presence, he says, listen and obey. And then he goes on to say this, exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sir, so there is this pattern. There is this expectation that part of the lifestyle of God's people is that they will be dwelling in the Word, that it might dwell richly in them. And from that rich indwelling of the Word, the Word will come forth in our speech towards one another. Like a rock dropped in a lake causing the waters to ripple back and forth against the banks and everything in the water. So we want to be encountering God's word that it might ripple out from us through our words to one another. How shall we do that though? What will that speech look like? Paul gives us a few 
descriptors here in these verses. First of all, we see that when we speak to God's people, God's word, we ought to speak for maturity. We ought to speak for maturity. Verse 16, Christians ought to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly so that they will be able to teach and admonish one another. Now, teaching speaks to the more positive aspect of instruction. You're telling people, instructing them on what the Christian faith actually is. Admonishing is the more negative correction. That's the old, let's get together for lunch on Thursday thing. You have sin that needs to be pointed out as people are not living in accordance with God's word. Now, why do I summarize that as maturity? Well, Uh, either flip back there or remember what Paul says in Colossians 1 at the end of that chapter as he describes his apostolic ministry. He He says that we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Him. He uses the same words to describe his ministry as an apostle teaching and admonishing as the ministry that we are to have here. Now, the ESV has warning in chapter 1, but it's the same word in the original, nutheteo. They translate it as admonishing here. It's the same word. So teaching and admonishing, teaching and warning, it's the same thing Paul says. This is what we do to present people mature in Christ. We, We preach Christ. We teach and admonish in all wisdom that they might be mature. And now later in chapter 3, he says, you Christians ought to do the same thing. You're to be teaching and admonishing one another that they might, that all of us might be mature as well. So think about how you interact with people before and after the service. What do you talk about? Are you intentionally trying to help them, even in small ways, mature in Christ? Are you letting others speak to you in ways that would provoke maturity in Christ in you? What about during the week? Are you seeking to exhort one another, as Hebrews says? We live in an age marked by instant communication. Why not leverage that for the cause of Christ in love for his people? Paul says that as we speak to the people of Christ, we ought to speak for maturity. But secondly, he also says we ought to speak in wisdom. We ought to speak in wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, why do we need wisdom? Well, we need wisdom for a lot of different things. But in this context, we need wisdom to speak because different people have different needs. Remember what we saw last, this past summer from 1 Thessalonians 5? There God told the believers in Thessalonica to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. That's very specific and yet diverse. What happens if you do not encourage the faint-hearted, but rather you encourage the idle? Well, they're not going to see their sin. They're going to be hindered from believing that they need to have their life changed in light of God's plan and you will give them a false sense of security. But what happens if you admonish the faint-hearted? You're going to crush their spirit. They already have an exaggerated view of their sin that they feel burdened by. And rather than encouraging them by correcting them, by warning them, you're just going to level them out and bring them to the ground with no hope whatsoever. So Paul is saying we need to have wisdom to speak God's word in other in ways that we actually need to hear. Now, part of that's God-given, right? What does James say? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it, and God will give generously. But part of it is just practically arrived at as well. There's nothing supernatural for me to spend time with you during the week, to talk to you, to engage in conversation with you, and get to know who you are. Then there is a practical kind of wisdom that comes in knowing this is where this person is at in terms of their maturity, in terms of their life, in terms of the struggles and constant temptations. And so I'm going to just inherently know 
how to approach that person and how to speak to them in ways that help mature them, not discourage them. The only way to really fulfill these commands then, and that's what they are, commands, not suggestions, is to be part of the church, not just present at church. Third, we are to speak in song. We are to speak in song. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you sing when we gather together? When we come here on Sundays, do you sing? If you do, why do you sing? Why do you sing? Is it just to praise God? Well, that's good. But Paul also expects something more. He assumes that the word will dwell richly in this congregation and therefore through their songs as well. And therefore, because the word is dwelling in our songs, when we sing, we will be instructing one another, teaching and admonishing one another through our singing. So when we come together, our enthusiasm and our volume in song is not primarily about our ability, right? And those of you that are like me and struggle to hit those notes well know what I'm talking about. It's very easy to, to think, ah, oh, you know, I sound like, you know, someone strangling a cat when I sing. And so you want to just be, be quiet and, and timid and kind of back off. But the reality is that's not, that's not relevant for Paul, Okay. It might mean that you're not part of the music team, but it's not relevant for Paul in the sense that how we sing should point to the convictions we have and the belief we have about the truth that we're singing in a way that encourages and admonishes those around us. So just think for a minute about, about what we sang this morning. If you sang and meant it, I stand amazed in the presence that you were not only teaching the gospel to everyone that's here, that Jesus died for sinners, but you were testifying to your belief that Jesus died for you, that he's your savior, and that you're amazed that this man, Jesus, would humble himself and give his life for you, even a sinner like you. If you sang and meant it, come thou fount, then you taught about the necessity of a believer to pursue a life of holiness. You taught about the need for God to help your wandering heart be kept from sin and to live for Him alone. Perhaps you were struggling. You know you're struggling with a specific sin. And as you sang, come thou fount of every blessing, it was more than just wrote. It was the prayer of your heart. And it was evident by the contrition on your face and perhaps the tears from your eyes that you need this. You believe this. You want this. You need God working in your heart. And someone saw that and was admonished by the fact that they care nothing about their sin this morning. That they've lived this week completely for themselves without a care in the world and suddenly they're struck by the fact that this person takes their sin seriously. How much more should I? That's what our singing should do. It should give worship to God as it instructs by teaching and admonishing one another. But how can you testify to these biblical truths? How can you testify to the, the gospel realities of our songs if the word is not first dwelling in you individually and in us as a congregation? That should be what drives and authenticates our worship together, the richly dwelling word in our minds and our hearts. So as we speak, it ought to be for maturity and wisdom and song. And finally, we ought to speak with thankfulness with thankfulness. This is the last modifier of verse 16. But go back and look at verse 15. We are to be thankful, he says. Then in verse 16, we ought to teach and admonish and sing with thankfulness. Then in verse 17, we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you think Thanksgiving is kind of important? I think being grateful is important. 
This week, in fact, it hit me so much as I was studying this, how we tend to not be thankful or give thanks as we are commanded. The smallest thing, and we are so quick to whine and complain, especially on social media. Uh, I mean, you would just think the world's coming to an end because some store doesn't have what they advertise in an ad. And they never do, apparently. They always pull that stuff. Well, in contrast, by God's providence, I read a journal entry from the Puritan pastor Matthew Henry. On March 3rd, 1713, he was mugged on his way home from visiting a family for Bible study in their home. He had about 11 shillings stolen from him that night. But when he got home, he wrote this. What reason have I to be thankful to God that having traveled so much, yet I was never robbed before now? He went on to express how he was thankful. He was thankful, furthermore, how this robbery made real to him the abundance of evil that there is in the love of money. How Satan is still at work in the sons of disobedience and how vain it is to seek worldly wealth when it can so easily be stripped away from us. Now, this is not a sermon, folks. Think about this. This is not a sermon where he gets to look pious in front of his people. This is his journal intended for his eyes and the eyes of God only. And yet this is how he responds to robbery, with thankfulness, a multifaceted thankfulness that results in his sanctification. I find that to be incredibly convicting. No whining, no complaining, no woe is me, I have it so bad, just thanksgiving to God. How do we come to be like Henry in that way? How do we come to have thanksgiving that just wells up within us? Or Paul, who three times in three verses emphasizes, drives home this necessity, this oughtness of gratitude and thankfulness that should exist in our lives. Notice what he says in verse 17, that we give thanks to God the Father through Christ. It is the reality of the gospel that should reframe everything in our life, everything that we do and everything that we experience. So that even when we're serving one another in word and deed, we do so in the name of Christ, not ourselves. We're seeking His glory, not our own. And whether that's easy or that's difficult, we are able to be thankful because of the astonishing love towards us that Jesus displayed, even when we deserved hell and we're sinners before Him. When the gospel dwells deep within us, it changes the way that we see everything. In the late 1800s, Spurgeon listened to another minister talking to a woman about going to the theater to see plays. She loved going to the theater to see plays. This is the the, the late 1800s. She said that there was much pleasure in going to the theater. She said, quote, The pleasure of going to the play are very great. The pleasures of going to the play are very great. There is the pleasure of thinking of it beforehand, the enjoyment of it at the time, and the pleasure of thinking of it afterwards. Then the pastor joined the conversation and said, Yes, madam, and there is one other pleasure you seem to have forgotten. That is the pleasure of thinking of it on your dying bed. I would like you to remember that as well. You know what his point was? His point was that when we are staring death in the face, most of us will not find much pleasure or comfort and assurance in all of the completely meaningless things in which we've been entertained with in this world. But in contrast, I think that as we lay dying, thinking of what is to come, we will not regret regret one moment of our days that was spent with Christ in His Word. It's the beginning of a new year. We're thinking about resolutions and changes to make in our lives. And as Christians, we 
purpose so very often to read the Bible and to pray more, and those are great things to aim for. But this year, just be mindful of why you should be doing those things. Be mindful that surely your time in prayer and the Word is about your relationship with God, but it's also about more than that as well. As God's people, we are called to live for one another, not just ourselves. In love, therefore, just as God's Word can change us, spoken by us, God's Word can change others too. Father, we're thankful for that, that you would allow us to be instruments of change in the life of this church and this congregation. Father, therefore, help us to see that the ministry of the Word starts with our own relationship with you. It starts with our own cultivation of time in communion and fellowship with you, the living God. And just as your word begins to have its work in our own minds and our own hearts, as we come to better see the glory of your son and experience a change into his likeness, Father, may that indwelling word bubble up out of our lives in our speech, through teaching and admonishing all wisdom, through song and thanksgiving to one another, that the process of ever-increasing maturity that you have designed for our lives might be fulfilled in part through what we say. What we say to one another. God, we ask these things of you because only you can bring them about. Only you can give us a greater love for your word. Only you can give us a greater passion for prayer. So Father, do it. Do it. Come into our life. Fill us with your spirit and draw us close to yourself, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of your people as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.